And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The race is on, and in this special tribute episode of the Race F1 podcast, we'll discuss the life and legacy of a true one-of-a-kind, Sir Frank Williams, who has passed away at the age of 79. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to try and do some justice to this great man are David Tremaine and Glenn Freeman. And I have to say, I'm delighted to have David Tremaine joining us. It's a shame it's in such a sad set of circumstances. Uh, For the few of you who don't know, David's a long-standing Formula One journalist, author of some fantastic motorsport books as well, including Jock and Rint, Uncrowned King of F1 and The Lost Generation, which are two of my favourites. And of course, also writes for Grand Prix Plus, the e-magazine, which I can thoroughly recommend. And what's more, of course, David also knew Frank Williams very well. So, Hello, David, and dare I challenge you immediately to to remember the first time you encountered Frank Williams in person? Is that etched in your mind, or is it is it lost in the mists of time? Funnily enough, it is etched. Hello, by the way. Um, yeah, it is etched because it was at a Formula Three race at Thruxton in I'm pretty sure it was 1983. So there we all are, thinking of ourselves being reasonably sized fishes in a a reasonably sized pond, and then the word goes round, Frank Williams is coming. And we're all like little schoolboys sort of standing to attention, making sure our blazers are done up, just in case we bump into this great man. And even then, he'd only been winning for like four years. I say only, but when you look at what he went on to achieve, even then, we were all sort of well aware that it was like a papal visit. And, of course, Frank was his super fit running self and everything else. Um, he reminded me of Anthony Valentine. Do you remember the actor? He used to be in Callan and movies like that. Um, just super fit. Everything about him was this, like a bundle of energy had suddenly arrived. And he, he would talk to anyone and everyone. That was the thing that impressed me. It wasn't like he was sort of aloof or anything else. He was just another guy who loved racing who turned up to see if, Senna was going to win again. Yeah, that enthusiasm was very much a calling card, wasn't it? Great love of motorsport, without which he'd never got to where he was. And Glenn Freeman, obviously you're best known to listeners of the Race Podcast as the host of Bring Back V10s, a keen historian of an era that Williams very much dominated at times. So what did Frank Williams mean to you? Yeah, Williams, the team, and Frank, the man, are a huge part of our Bring Back V10s era. Um, And of course, of my early fandom of F1, Williams cars, the drivers, the races that they won, the championships that they won defined my early years as an F1 fan. And I'm I'm not ashamed to say they were my favourite team 
when I was younger. Um, so Williams played a huge role in in creating, I would say, my obsession with F1. So of course, as we reflect now on on Frank's passing, I'm I'm sad that he's gone, but I'm incredibly grateful for everything that he brought to the sport, and I'm appreciative also of a life that's that was well lived you know I, I as you say I've had to look into so many things about Frank's story for for work and for pleasure reasons and I think what what David touched on there that kind of infectious enthusiasm that he had for everything that that carried him through that's what made him make a mark on the sport in the first place it's what carried him through the trials and tribulations he went on through in his personal life later on with his injuries that I'm sure we'll come to. But that, that that's all wrapped up for me in the Williams story. And I, I put out a tweet when I heard the news saying that, you know, Frank's story will never be forgotten. And I genuinely believe that's true. There's there's not going to be another story like Frank Williams. And yeah, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad it got to have an impact on my life in some way. And I'll always be grateful to Frank and everything that him and Williams brought to F1. Yeah, when we lose these great figures, it's always a cliche, isn't it, to say there'll never be another like him. But I think in Frank Williams's case, the story is so extraordinary. The man so astonishing in terms of what he did that it's impossible uh, to imagine. And I have to say, from the first moment I, I dealt with him when I was a journalist who just started covering Formula One for Autosport, it must have been probably on the first weekend I did, went to his afternoon media session. I think about five of us went into his little office sat down and you know ultimately I've generally treated the F1 paddock as it's just a big racing paddock isn't it there's some famous names but Frank Williams there's a bit of a uh, an aura there but I always remember him being he, he clocked the fact that I was new and just sort of asking me what I sort of what I what I was doing there who I'm not in a negative way but just in a genuinely interested way just because uh, I like to think he recognized a fellow enthusiast but well, that's class isn't it exactly yeah yeah just the warmth straight away and yeah, I always found him uh, a pleasure to deal with, even though obviously in recent years his uh, appearances in F1 have been uh, been much rarer. But let, let's look back, David. People don't always talk about the the earlier years of Frank Williams, the uh, the race team owner. Obviously, he came from relatively humble beginnings and just managed to build up this sort of first racing team, Frank Williams Racing Cars, which of course did run in Formula One, based on it's very hard to tell, just absolute determination and hope as far as I can tell. Yeah. I mean, I love, I love Frank's early story. And I remember talking to him about, um, for the Jochen book, funny enough, and he, he delivered a car to Jochen and was besotted with him because here he was in this E-type and he had pink trousers and a red coat and, everything else and was just this super flamboyant guy. And Frank was Frank loved people like that, didn't he? Because they were interesting. And he tried racing himself and crashed a lot. Um, eventually realised that he wasn't going to make it in Formula 3. And I guess he had Charlie Crichton-Stewart. <clears throat> One of his friends was racing against him and Piers Courage. And he had the, the flat in um, Pinner Road in, in Harrow, which is where I, I lived as a kid. Not that I knew about Frank in those days, but the adventures that they had, like slamming down the road in um, Dave Brody's Austin A35 and somehow getting it on his side. So he slid on its side until he was almost parked outside their house. And then he just opened the door and sort of opened the door above his head by now, poked this thing out and sort of put his arms out as if to say, look, look what I've done. And Brode had a photo of that. And then there was the time when Frank was 
um, they had a bet that he wouldn't streak down the back garden. Um, and of course, Frank was up for anything, so he stripped off and streaked, and then they shut him out. And it was raining, and the trains were going past, and Frank was trying to hide from everyone. You heard all these stories from, I guess they were in autosport and motoring news, or at least alluded to to a certain extent. Um, and he wasn't really taken very seriously until he stopped racing and started supplying people with spare parts. So he would follow the sort of nomadic Formula 3 circus around Europe in those days. And then gradually he started entering peers in Formula 3 and then Formula 2. So by 1968, he wasn't sort of dismissed as a a little bit of an, a, an irritation at times. People were beginning to take him more seriously. Then they got that Brabham BT24 and put the Cosworth DFW in the back, went to the Tasman and Piers finished third overall and won a race at Tarotonga. So they kind of needed each other, completed each other, and suddenly both of them were much, much more respectable when they came home. Then they went Formula One with a a different Brabham with a Cosworth DFE in the back and finished second at Monaco and second in Watkins Glen. And suddenly, Frank wasn't a joke anymore. It was a really serious, beautifully prepared effort. And there was Piers and Frank almost winning races. And the sky seemed to be the limit. It's just astonishing, isn't it? In those days, you could have somebody do this. A few years before, he's crashing his Austin A35 and proving to be a, a, an unsuccessful racing aspirant, then a few years later, able to get top results in Formula One. It, it's the kind of story that is has been impossible in Formula One for, for many decades now. Well, there was a super pick in autosport at the end of, <clears throat> must have been 68, when they bought the Brabham, the 24, and then they had the Formula Two and the Formula Three cars all lined up and Frank in the front, having pulled his pockets inside out to show that there was no money in. So just going, you know, arms stretched out saying I'm broke, but kind of look behind me, look what we've done. Um, yes, to build, you could do that in those days, but it, it didn't happen by luck, did it? Because his cars were always immaculately prepared. And Frank always spent money cleverly and always spent it on the things that mattered. But he also knew that the appearance of the cars was very important if you were going to attract sponsorship from other people. And that was a trait, obviously, that Ron Dennis became well known for when he kind of broke through as well. But when I think of Frank's early years, and I think of some of the stories that people who worked with him and even his family have told, as David said there, obviously, yes, that's impossible to do that now, but it wasn't easy back then. And one of the, the things that a lot of people always went back to was Frank's drive and his charisma and his charm. It, those were the sort of words that came up. And as well as being that kind of determined, almost annoying guy who won't go away, who won't give up, you've got to have something about your personality that makes you that makes you likeable, that makes people warm to you and, and makes them not just sort of slam the door in your face or, or slam the phone when you ring or, and that sort of thing. And you could tell that sometimes perhaps almost to his detriment or certainly to the annoyance of his wife, Ginny, maybe he was too charming sometimes, but I think that was, that was a huge part of Frank getting himself to the point where yes, 
they could create an opportunity in Formula One and they could make something of it. But all of these little building blocks and all these little things that made Frank special had to be in place. Otherwise, it would have fallen over before we've even got to the stage that we've talked about so far. Yeah, I think we all know people that were wannabe Frank Williams, don't we, that didn't <laughs> have that charm. And you're right, he did have charm, didn't he? And charisma as well. Yeah, very much so. You know, wry sense of humour as well. He was a very difficult character not to like, even when he was probably difficult at times to deal with. It's amazing the determination he showed during that period because it was just constant setbacks though, wasn't it? Because even though broke through, got those results with Piers Courage, there were a lot of blows in the 70s, weren't there? Not least the, the loss of, of Courage uh, himself and the Tommaso. Well, it was interesting because I remember with, I'm sure it was the Rin book, uh, where he was talking about one point at Monaco after the race. So Jochen had won and was ecstatic and Nina was there and Sally, Courage and Piers. And they were a little band together, weren't they? And Frank said he was just sat there sort of watching, thinking they're all so young and it's just too good to be true. Just how cool everything was. They got the Di Tommaso deal. Everything was going along. It was moving forward. And then, yeah, as you say, they went to Zanvoort and suddenly it all ended. And that, to go back to what you were saying earlier, this this era when Frank wasn't really... You, you, a lot of people today don't understand that there was a, a Frank before the Walter Wolf business happened and he started off again. And up until that point, he was doing really well. And it was only after Piers died that it all sort of fell to pieces for a few years and the struggle came back. Plus, of course, Piers was a, a super close friend. So you can imagine what a blow that must have been. And yet Frank still fought on. He wasn't going to give up. Yeah, by all accounts, it made a profound impact on him, but... I don't think there was ever a point where he thought about stopping, had to kind of keep going. And if you look at what happened during that period, the amount of deals he was able to pull together, getting the the, uh, the Tommaso deal, getting Politoy's backing, the ISO Marlboro project, yeah. again and again, he was able to produce backers who would put money into this into the, into this project, which the determination, again, it's just that word that keeps coming up. That's a good point as well, what you just mentioned, because he – as I remember, Frank's Italian was really good. So that was another thing about him that other people didn't necessarily have. I think his Italian and French were very good. So he was always able to go and, again, charm people, but in their own language. And as he, he got Iso Revolter as well, didn't he? And then he got Mar- Marlborough money. He was very clever at sort of pulling in the little bits. And then there's always the famous bit about being so hard up, he had to use a, a phone box as his office telephone but that again you know can you imagine having to do that you know we've all got mobiles now haven't we and yet there he is going out putting money into a slot to talk to anyone when he's looking for money yeah it takes something to do that doesn't it and the amazing thing about this era as as you mentioned Walter Wolf took over the team and Frank Williams was originally involved He, he saw what way the wind was blowing and he was very much marginalised in a team that was once his, so he had to go his own way. But Glenn, if this was in another era and with a different kind of character, we'd probably be talking about the Frank Williams racing car team as kind of something that had potential that was never realised because there wasn't the money and then we never heard of him of him again, wouldn't we? We see quite a few of these that 
sort of show a little bit of promise, but just that ability to to keep going, I guess, is the thing that that, that marked him out. Yeah, at best, I think we would have looked back on him perhaps as a glorious failure, and people people would speak fondly of him. Um, the, the, David's point about him speaking Italian is a really good one. I have seen footage of him on the grid at Monza, perhaps even talking to Ferrari mechanics or team management or something like that. Absolutely fluent, and that that's all. Yeah, it's a mark of respect i think to the people that you're dealing with as well and that was something that frank took very seriously but yeah the fact that the as you said there's this original project that a lot of more modern f1 fans might not even be aware of that that frank williams had tried it in this guise and then had to go through it and do it all again and again it's a mark of the man that he came back and what we that now know as williams and what became williams grand prix engineering became such a success all things considered so quickly really as well and of course david the key at this point was informing the new team he recognized patrick had who worked for the original williams team uh latterly and they formed this partnership and and that was something that frank williams said was kind of the best decision he made because by going into business with patrick had it combined that engineering genius with the the commercial genius and the wheeling and dealing of, of frank williams to create one of the partnerships in motorsport history, isn't it? Motorsport history is littered with great partnerships, but this one stands head and shoulders above most for just how perfectly balanced it was. Yeah, I wrote something today about Frank, which only occurred to me when I was driving home um, after lunch when I'd heard the news. I suddenly thought, Frank completed people. He he completed peers. And then people like Keki and Alan Jones and everyone else working with Frank somehow and Nigel sort of brought them full circle and won them their success. But Patrick completed Frank. Patrick was the missing link technically that hadn't been there before, particularly in the sort of the bad years after Piers's death. And yes, he brought this tremendous pragmatic engineering to Williams. And then the really clever thing that they did subsequently was to bring in Adrian from 1991 onwards. So suddenly you had the the kind of blue sky thinker. You had the very grounded, down to earth, thoroughly pragmatic Patrick who would say, wait a minute, that's not going to work if you have the, the front of the chassis so narrow that the driver can't have his feet side by side, but has to have one above the other kind of thing. And that was part of Frank's talent to be able to attract these people and then let them get on with what they did really well while he did what he did really well and as you say it was one of the great relationships no matter how you cut and slice it I'm sure there were times when they didn't get on um, and that they would argue about things but fundamentally the two of them Frank and Patrick together were why Williams was such a successful team for such a long time yeah they were ultimately two jigsaw pieces that fitted each other perfectly and kind of completed each other's picture, I think, as David said there. And the thing about the fact that Frank didn't, from what I can tell from the people I've spoken to, and we we have um, Frank's son, Jonathan, on Bring Back V10s pretty regularly. And you talk about how the team operated and how Frank operated. From what I hear and from what I can, can learn from people, he didn't interfere in the things that he wasn't an expert in. He, tr- he he got the right people in and he trusted them. 
And yes, they could then have arguments amongst themselves if they were in the same departments and that sort of thing. You might have an opinion, but it was, I, I think it wouldn't have worked with Patrick initially. And then when they, when the teams got bigger and when you had more people that were intrinsic to the success of a Formula One project, it wouldn't have worked if Frank felt that he was this all powerful man who had his fingerprints all over the team and therefore could make all of the big decisions on his own. Um, when we uh, spoke to uh, Richard West about what they did in the wake of Imola 94 and Richard was on the commercial side and Richard named a huge number of people who were, who were considered like this important delegation of how do we handle what we do with the driver lineup. That was the subject we were talking about. And again, Frank valued everybody's opinion on it and it wasn't just the very top I know as I'm sure we'll come to later Adrian would complain that sometimes he felt left out of of Frank and Patrick's decision making but there are times when you can talk to Patrick and he would say that Frank would suddenly have an idea and hadn't told him I remember researching a story where there were rumors that they were going to test Jack Villeneuve in 2004 when Jack was out of work and when uh, Patrick uh, was asked about it he said it might, maybe it's happened. Maybe it's going to happen. Maybe Frank hasn't told me. And it is one of those things where Patrick knew that he, he had to keep going up to Frank's office to make sure that he, um, he stayed up to date with all the decisions Frank was making on that side of things. But yeah, during, certainly during the Williams heyday, which I think we can call the majority of the eighties and the nineties, Frank had complete faith in people. If they were getting the results for him, he, he believed in them. Uh, and, and I think that's that's part of what made Williams tick in that era was that Frank was willing to to know when someone else was an expert, and he and he gave those people the opportunity to thrive in his environment. And Frank always sort of looked after the drivers' side, didn't he? I remember falling out with him in 1991 when he was they were going to test Alan Junior who was quite a good mate of ours at the time. And for I can't remember quite what happened, but I know Al sort of got the bad end of the stick. And I wrote a motoring news editorial that was something like Williams 5, Racing Drivers nil, and went on to moan about this. And then Frank wasn't happy and we'd gone to Monza and had one of those media get-togethers. And at the end, it was sort of, do I wedding behind afterwards? And then he gave me a massive bollocking and said, you know, I didn't appreciate what you wrote, blah, blah, blah. So I said, well, I didn't appreciate what you did with our mate. Blah. And we kind of left it at that. And then I was disinvited from something um, at, at dinner or a lunch or something the following week. And then about a month later, it was all forgotten and it was all over. But it was quite funny at the time. So, Frank, you could sort of you could get to him and he, he wasn't um, impervious to criticism. Let's put it that way. But I like the fact that he always spoke his mind, and I think he respected you if you spoke yours. Yeah, it's something probably he shares with Patrick Head. You can see why they they, they fit together uh, so well. The, the thing that is astonishing in the well, one of the things that's astonishing in the Frank Williams story is just how quickly this second team broke through. Because one minute it wasn't a team that had a huge amount of resources behind it; they ran a customer march for uh, Patrick Nev, who was an adequate driver, but no more in '77, and then. Suddenly, a year later, able to get a podium finish and then and then winning races. Yeah, I mean, they, they should have won in um, Long Beach, shouldn't they, in 78 with the FWI6. 
Yeah, and by the and by the second half of seventy nine, they were basically the leading team in Formula One in terms of uh, rack, uh, reeling off the the victories for uh, for Alan Jones. And obviously, they got the sponsorship from Saudi Airlines from uh, uh, for seventy eight, which was a, a really pioneering deal. From uh, you, you know, the story behind that was when Frank went over and literally camped outside because they sort of took the view that yeah, we, we said we'd do it, we said we'd do it. And Frank was trying to sort of make the point that I know, but I need the money now. You know, they assume that everyone in Formula One had money of their own anyway. And Frank was, you know, on, <clears throat> right on the limit financially. And it was only because, again, he was not going to go away empty handed that he got the money in time to start developing the cars. And if you look at the FW06, what a typical Patrick head car that was. We need a simple, light, dynamic little car that's going to work. And boy, they got it. But then FW07 was like a properly engineered Lotus 79. Patrick understood what ground effect meant and all the extra loads and everything else and that you needed a chassis that wasn't going to twist, which is what the Lotus started doing and why it was no good in 1979. And that's why the Williams was such a great car. Because Patrick just knew exactly what was needed from an engineering point of view. And as we've said, Frank just, you know, Frank had no input to that car. It's just, okay, that's your side of it. Let's go for it. Yeah, when you consider the the pace of development of, of that technology in F1 at the time, to be the the one who really gets it and is able to get on top of it, just testament to the, to the brilliance of Patrick Head, who I always felt as well, he was able to kind of get on with doing the job in hand because he knew that that Frank Williams would have the other side of things covered, which which counts for a lot. I think it's something yeah, they complemented each other perfectly, didn't they? Exactly. Was exactly. it great they won at home? Their first victory came at Silverstone. Yeah, of course. Yeah, Clay Regazzoni's win, and obviously it would have been Alan Jones's, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, he he retired from the lead. And yeah, just a, a amazing one. The thing I also quite like is how. Williams as a team were never very backward looking because I remember a few years ago, I think for Autosport we wanted to do something with some Williams trophies and sort of, so so I tried to find out oh where's where's the Silverstone seventy nine trophy and they didn't really know because I, like you think this that the trophy would be a centerpiece but like that you get the feeling that like a few days after that when oh that's yesterday's trophy it doesn't really matter now the next one uh, that that really matters which uh, it, it it says something about the the outlook of that team that it is always kind of pushing on pushing forward. It's interesting. That because I agree totally, but what's also interesting about Frank, I remember going, I went down to interview him at, after the championship had been won in 96. It was really you know, one of those fun sort of things. We just sat down, had coffee in his office, and we would talk about what a fantastic season it had been. And he said something that really shocked me because he said, Yeah, well, we can't rest on our laurels because we could fall flat on our faces next year. And you sort of think, Hang on, you've just smashed everyone this year you know you've got by far the best car blah 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 and Frank was going yeah but you can never rely on that you know it could all look at Ferrari they've got loads of budget they've got Michael Schumacher they've got this this and this and then <clears throat> they sort of said I wish I could see further than I can so I said what do you mean and I said well I can only kind of see two years into the future whereas someone like Ron I don't know how he does it but Ron seems to be able to see five years ahead and he's usually accurate. They had massive respect for Ron. And I know they've got to work together against um, 
Burnie when they thought the teams were getting um, messed around. And they took Ken along with them in that as well. But he had this huge respect for Ron and absolutely no qualms about admitting how much he respected a rival. And then when you actually look at it, it was only like a year out. Because if you look when Renault pulled out, suddenly Williams was nothing like the team it had been in, in sort of 80. Um, where were we? What year were we in? 96, yeah. So by 98 and 99, Williams was nothing like the, the force it had been. So he was right to sort of worry about what he was going to do in the future. He never relaxed. But Toto's the same, isn't he? Toto's never happy with what he's got because he's always thinking about, are we still going to have it next week? There was a similar story that I've heard about. I think it was Silverstone 97 was maybe the 100th win. And the the kind of PR side of the team couldn't get Frank and Patrick to do anything about celebrating the 100th win because they were annoyed that they'd been outpaced by Ferrari in the first part of the race before Schumacher's car had broken down. And that was just the attitude all the time. And I think that fits with what you're saying, Ed, that there was never, in their minds, there was never any time to rest on their laurels or or celebrate the achievements almost in the moment because as far as they were concerned, the only way they could keep having those achievements in the future was to not stop and think about what you're winning right now. And and, and as David says, like it, it did it did start to unravel not long after that. So the attitude in many ways was right. They could they couldn't stand still and pat themselves on the back because everybody no one else is doing that. So everybody else is flat out all the time. And they could see that coming. I think Frank was also very conscious of what had happened to Tyrrell. Because that was you know, a fantastic team was winning championships and then it just began a gradual sort of glide. I remember Alan Henry saying something in, I think it was 2004, when Montoya won in Brazil, didn't he? I remember Al saying, I wonder if that's going to be their their last one. And at the time it sounded like sacrilege, but Alan was very savvy and very, you know, had, had seen sort of the way the wind was blowing. Never seems like a team like that can fall from grace, does it? No, that's very true. I must admit, um, I, I did a number of features over the years at Williams because it was always a team in the state in the situation of rebuilding. Certainly, when I, I've since I've been covering Formula One, and a few times I raised that Tyrrell comparison with Frank Williams when interviewing him, and he uh, he didn't really like the comparison. It's it's fair to say, but I think probably there was an element where he realised there was a certain degree of of, of truth to it. Um, because obviously Williams didn't quite evolve in the way it needed to. There are many reasons for, for that. But going back a bit, even then, you know, we talk about the, the team's later decline, but there was a point in obviously 1986 when Frank Williams had his accident driving to the airport after a, a test at uh, Paul Ricard, and he was in the Ford Sierra. He was always, by all accounts, quite uh, quite a enthusiastic road driver, shall we say, had his accident, and then life completely transformed. And I... I think David surely that those the change in his life that he suffered there would have finished off most people in that in that scenario. That that's the thing that's most that that's that's the thing that for me the way he came back from that that changes this story from a remarkable one to an incredible one, if you like. Yeah, and there's so many separate strands in that. I mean, the first thing I'd say there is, I remember Frank saying to me, "I'm so glad it was me." First of all, he said, 
I deserve that the way I used to drive on the road because I was an idiot. And I'm so glad it happened to me and that I didn't cause that to happen to Peter Windsor, who was traveling in the car with him, which I thought was an incredibly honest thing to say. Then there's the sort of the person one has to talk about when when you talk about Frank is Ginny, his wife, because Ginny it was Ginny who Frank, who saved Frank, because in the hospital they were all for sort of you know there's not really much we can do for him kind of stuff. And there was almost a point where they were going to shove him into a corridor and just let nature take its course, and Ginny was never going to have that. And then the way that Ginny was always behind Frank, even when he was able-bodied. And then afterwards, she was an even stronger source of sucker and, and inspiration to him. I, mean, I don't know how well you knew Ginny, but I, I didn't meet her for years. And then Jonathan introduced me to her on the grid at Silverstone. And I can't remember what she said. She said something rather nice. And I just said, I've, I've always been terrified of meeting you. She just laughed and said, what on earth for? And I said, well, now that I've met you, I really have no idea, but you just have such a, a huge reputation. And I said, I read your the book that you wrote, A Different Kind of Life. And that was when I I realised she hated that book because she she thought it was a Me Too book. You know, I'm not in a Me Too in the, in the present-day sense of it, but sort of, hey, I was there as well. And you think... No, no, no. You know, you were the crucial person in his life, particularly at that time. And I'm sure the strength she gave him was what helped him, plus his own natural resources, to recover from that. And I remember being at Brown's Hatch in 86, four months after the accident, in the press room, which was a kind of, as I recall, it was like a tent, I think. And Suddenly, Frank is wheeled in, and it's the first time he's been seen at a Grand Prix since the accident, and everybody stood up and applauded. And there were people crying with the emotion of it. It was so powerful. Here's this guy sort of smiling up benignly at everyone. This is the new Frank. And boy, you know, four months after an accident like that, that was a super quick recovery. And he always used to say after that, his team was what kept him going didn't he was was that the weekend that did Ginny go on a podium that weekend as well um i'm sure i think she might yes yeah there's that they, iconic image second, yeah they? that iconic image of her i think lifting the yes. lifting the trophy yes. kind of through gritted teeth and i thought yeah. that's just such that's such an iconic image of for her and of her and just tells you so much about the kind of steel that she must have been made of as well that was why it was so lovely in Barcelona, wasn't it? Where I think the whole family was there for the last win. Hugely emotional. Yeah, the 2012 celebration when they uh, also set fire to the garage. Thankfully, <laughs> got away with that one. But yeah, that was uh, uh, an, an astonishing day. And I would say that that book, uh, Virginia Williams, A Different Kind of Life, is well worth reading. It'd be well worth reading even if you didn't care about motorsports. It's honest. a fantastic uh, book, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think a lot of the interviews that were conducted for that were used in the Williams documentary that was released, I think, in 2017, mm-hmm. which I say is well worth watching. That's That was a far more candid film than perhaps I was expecting. And uh, I'd say it's up there as, as one of the best Formula One documentaries uh, around there. But certainly, yeah, Ginny Williams played a huge 
parts there and the, the insights she offers into Frank Williams and also the good and the bad of Frank Williams. You know, we're all a mixture of the good and the bad, aren't we? Nobody's Nobody is, is perfect. And I feel you get a really rounded view of Frank Williams as well. I never found out who the driver was. Apparently there was, there was some guy that had stayed with them that was a potential Williams driver. And Jimmy said to Frank the next day, he's not a suitable driver or something like that. And Frank said, why not? He said, he's made his own bed. <laughs> For some reason, that, that to her wasn't the kind of spirit that she expected from a, a Williams F1 driver. I wonder if that's still a criteria to this day. We'll have to uh, we'll have to see. <laughs> I can't see George Russell not being able to make his own bed, but uh, but you you never know. Yeah, it's um, and there is that that connection between Frank Williams and drivers, isn't there? It, it's strange because he seems to be a he was a character who had great regard for the skills of drivers, yet could also be quite ruthless and also a little bit a little bit lax in some areas. For example, when they signed PK, which is a three million a year deal. As far as I can tell, and I'm not 100% sure on this, but I spoke to quite a few people involved in it, he did promise PK number one status, but never bothered to kind of enshrine it or tell anyone. Yeah. Uh, and because he just assumed it would be the case. And of course, Mansell was perhaps better than he, he'd equated. And then you end up with this situation that there was uh, uh, Patrick Head some years ago talking about this, that Patrick Head was saying, well, I, I had PK saying this and Mansell saying something else. I didn't know what Frank had agreed. I couldn't ask him. He was in the hospital. Apparently apparently, at one stage, PK visited Mansell in hospital, uh, uh, visited Williams in hospital to try and get guidance on what his contract said when Frank Williams was covering. So you sort of got poor old uh, Patrick Head there in this absurd situation of uh trying to keep the the team going while it's fighting for a championship and he's been left this uh this uh this sort of little problem but uh yeah well it's funny because just frank he became obsessed with some drivers didn't he i mean they adored jonesy because jonesy was absolutely their kind of driver and they they kind of lucked into keki because they didn't really want him but if Jonesy wasn't going to be there and they, they got Carlos and they'd lost their faith in in him. So I think it was Charlie Crichton Stewart down at Rickard sort of saying, this guy's really good. And then suddenly, you know, they realised they'd got another Jonesy. And yet other people, like Michaeli, he thought he got it all done and dusted. And suddenly, well, we don't want you. And Damon, you know, getting rid of Damon... I know they'd agreed it before he won the world championship, but or Lafitte, they halved his money in 1984. Because Frank didn't think he'd been good enough in the horrible car he had to drive in 83. And you sort of think he, he was harsh when he needed to be. And yeah, he adored people like Ayrton. He would have loved Michael, wouldn't he? I mean, Frank was always starstruck with the really good ones. That was one of the reasons why he went after Frentzen so hard, wasn't it? Because Frentzen was the guy who could beat Schumacher. I think yeah. it was almost a, a proxy for Schumacher, if, if you like, because he'd, he'd missed out on him and not not really clocked him. But it's interesting, isn't it, Glenn? Because this theme, Frank Williams dealing with drivers, has cropped up a lot of times in our Bring Back V10s episodes when we talked about all sorts of negotiations, the the long the long term negotiations with with Ayrton Senna. Of course, we first tested for Williams back in eighty three. Didn't drive uh, for them until ninety four. But there was always this looking for the next great driver, wasn't there? Yeah, the, the Senna thing is is fascinating because they you know behind the scenes in private they had such a close relationship for so long, and and to reference his wife Ginny again, she said that she could tell from 
the way Frank was talking on the phone when he was on the phone to Ayrton and that they would just talk for hours on end. And this was when Ayrton was a Lotus driver, when he was a McLaren driver. The idea, I can't imagine it happens very often that Lewis Hamilton and Christian Horner are having lengthy phone calls on an almost <laughs> weekly basis. You know, th- that idea that when these their teams were rivals and, and, and all of Frank's drivers were having to try and defeat Ayrton and that they had this incredible relationship. And it obviously... It, it kind of created an inevitability that Ayrton would get there in the end. The path wasn't straightforward. And yeah, the 90s for Williams in many ways with drivers were defined by the world champions that they got rid of. And in in the case of Senna's arrival, that was one that, that accelerated uh, Prost departing the team one year into a two-year contract because Alain Prost didn't want to drive him anymore. Frank had got his world championship out of Prost and now the obsession remained getting Ayrton into the car. And if that was at the expense of Prost, then so be it. Before that, you had the one with with Nigel Mansell. And Frank, I think in the end, was always pretty honest about that, that it certainly took two to tango in that case. And and Patrick... Quite edgy as well, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and Patrick has said, I spoke to Patrick... Uh, last year about about the Mansell situation. He said that they, they'd been negotiating with Nigel for a long time early in 92. And then the more competitive, the more races Nigel won, the more he delayed trying to come back to them and, and agree the deal, having pushed for it in the first place. So uh, Frank summed that one up in the end as, as two hard-headed idiots who should have, should have come to an agreement. Yeah, Prost gets cast aside because Senna's on the market. And the Damon one, yes, there was this, this Frentzen obsession and, and Frank I think David was was quite put out by the way I think David's manager uh David's uh Damon's manager went about the negotiations. I think once mm. Schumacher was off the market and signed for Ferrari, the approach it would have been Michael Breen, I believe, took was kind of like, well, there's no one else you can get now, so why don't we pay Damon some Schumacher money? And obviously at that point that wasn't how Williams went about contract I mean, certainly not after 1995. <laughs> no, no, exactly. So um, <clears throat> it's it it we created a situation. We had that situation, didn't we, where all these drivers won world championships driving Williamses, and we never saw number one on the car during the 90s and, and until 98. And that's that's just bizarre, really. But each situation was, I feel, unique. It wasn't just oh Frank gets bored of a driver or falls out of a driver for the same reason every time, and it's. It's reflective of the power that Williams had in the market at that time. They didn't need to pay top dollar because the cars were that good. Mm. They certainly did try to get Schumacher on a few occasions. And Michael's attitude was, no, well, they weren't going to offer the money. Vili Weber certainly played a big role in that and saying, look, you're not going to get the money I can get out of Ferrari. But Michael would say that no, he he wouldn't get as much respect for winning in a Williams as he would in a Ferrari. And as David mentioned, I can imagine that probably did eat away at Frank a little bit because he he had all these great names that had come through the team and he didn't get Michael. And, and in some ways, the thought of a Mike, Michael Schumacher driving an Adrian Newey Williams in the mid nineties is, is pretty terrifying actually. Yeah, that would have, that would have been, uh, been all conquering, wouldn't it? And I guess we should say about something that, that Frank Williams did admit was a misstep, losing Adrian Newey was probably the big mistake of this period, wasn't it? He left early in 97, joined McLaren. Obviously, Adrian Newey wanted to feel a little bit more like Williams was his team. Frank Williams wasn't entirely willing to accommodate that. And 
there are many reasons why Williams subsequently slid down from the, from the top, but it is a, a running theme that it's never been at the cutting edge aerodynamically, really, since Newey left, has it? No, I quite agree. And I, I think that was just one of those daft situations, wasn't it? Because Adrian, as I understood it, wanted a shareholding. And you think, you know, Patrick, Frank had been smart enough to give Patrick a shareholding when he arrived. Yeah, 30% he owned of the team. It was a 70-30 yeah. split, wasn't it? And, and Patrick would admit that, you know, he, he wasn't as strong on aero as, as Adrian was. So they complemented each other in that sort of sense. But I just, you know, Frank didn't like being dictated to, did he? And he didn't like it when, he didn't really like drivers with managers. He didn't like dealing with managers. And he was funny, wasn't he? Because let's say there were a lot of drivers of similar talent. And then you've got your, your, your Michaels and your Allens and your Ayrtons. And they were the ones that Frank was sort of obsessed with, although I never did think they were obsessed with Alan. And I remember being in the Williams garage in South Africa in 93 when Alan was in Quali. And you could almost see these thought bubbles coming out of Frank and Patrick's heads, kind of, you know, when's, when's this guy going to get on it? When's he going to put in a lap? And then Alan's just sort of looks like he's droning around and suddenly, bang, fastest lap. And you know how smooth Alan's style was. He was just one of those guys that never looked fast. And they both kind of looked at each other as if said, but you almost had the feeling that Frank wanted the guy to be sideways and jumping over curves and monstering the time out of the car because that's what a real racing driver was like in his head. And he had this paradox where he either adored a driver or he could be quite dismissive of them. Yeah, you can see 93 spec Prost. He did take what you might say was a very calculated approach to the title. Probably didn't didn't fit in well with uh, with that yeah, way of doing it. No, this. I agree. I agree. But I guess the the interesting thing with when you look at the decline of Williams is there was the after a few years without a manufacturer partnership. Obviously, Renault pulled out. They had Mechachrome Supertech engines for a few years. Then the BMW partnership was the the big chance, wasn't it? And it was a qualified success. Races were won. The 2003 championship was possible, but obviously for various reasons, including the tyre rules change, didn't happen. I I think that had a hugely dramatic effect, the tyre reinterpretation. Yeah, very, very much so. Montoya could easily have been a champion that year. But at the same time, and I think Patrick, I remember Patrick Head admitting to this in an interview I did a few years ago with him, um, that at times it was the kind of preeminent engine with a car that wasn't quite there aero-wise even though it was still very well engineered and everything, it just still wasn't quite there. So that's sort of same story. And then, of course, we have probably a defining moment for Williams was the fact that they weren't willing to sell to BMW because BMW wanted its works team. Mm. It was possible they could have sold. They ended up buying Sauber instead. And Williams ended up going it alone as a customer team. Big period of financial retrenchments. There was a question mark over the, the very survival of the team in the years after that. They really mm. had to had to strip back, and that that's kind of the the beginning of what I'd consider the, the most recent Williams team, shall we say? That that's the that's the key point for the for the struggles. Yeah, abs- absolutely. And it was it was what Alan had suggested might happen coming to fruition, and having seen it with Ken and how. You can look at it two ways, can't you? It's very sad when a great team run by a great person begins to fade, like 
Ken we all loved. And Ken Tyrrell was another very special man. I always remember Jackie used to describe him as a, a beacon of integrity. And you think, well, that's one of the best compliments you could pay anyone. And then to see it happening with Frank as well, both proud men, both hugely competitive. There was something very poignant about it. But at the same time, you massively admired them for not giving up, for just keeping on fighting. Because yeah, I'm sure in Frank's case, in particular, having his team and everything that it represented was his life. It's what kept him going. And when you think that, I think we're all pretty sure that Frank was the oldest quadriplegic in the world. He must have been pretty close to it if he wasn't. Now consider all the, I mean, I know a little bit about paralysis and how you, how people have to deal with it, which I'll explain in a minute. But, you know, away from races, everything in Frank's life was difficult. So it was like trebly or, or quadruply more difficult for Frank to remain running a team because of all his physical impairments. And yet he still, you know, I know he had excellent carers and everything else, but he still had that fight. And that's one of the reasons why I loved him so much, because he was just so different from anyone else. And he had, he had to have almost constant medical attention, didn't he? Because Absolutely. You yeah. know, he, couldn't, he couldn't even sleep for that many hours at a time <clears> because he had to be sort of moved around. And, you know, sometimes you'd be, um, uh, when you'd be speaking to him, you'd have to be sort of squeezed around the, t- yeah. you know, uh, think this constant kind of 24-7 thing that, the effort it must have, have required to just I'm flying, live with that. you know, I know that a lot yeah. of the time you went in the company plane, but yeah, every single part of his life was difficult. And yet still he had that drive and that loyalty that he inspired as well. Um, you know, we all, I'm sure we all desperately hoped that they would find their way back up. And I, I just find it amazing that of all the people who would win a Grand Prix, the final Grand Prix for Williams was Pastor Maldonado. <laughs> the greatest I mean, of all the Williams drivers. We always used to joke, uh, Joe and I always used to joke that, well, actually, you know, it wasn't Pastor really driving the car that day. It was Tony Oliuzzi by special arrangement. <laughs> but, you know, what a fantastic story that was. And I think to Frank's credit, in his later years, he saw the funny side of that as well. I, I interviewed him a few races after that that year in, in Valencia and it was during a, a GP2 race or something so obviously it was very hard to hear what he was saying but when when we went back and listened <clears> to the full recording afterwards there were all these little comments at the end of answers and, and things where you could tell that even he saw the funny side of the fact that of all the drivers to get us back to winning ways you'd have never thought it would be this bloke and, and, and little things like, I'm still not sure about him now and we're still waiting for the next time he's going to throw it off the road. Just, But they, it was always tacked on to the end of a, a genuine, well thought out, the kind of media friendly answer, but he just couldn't resist each time injecting his own little bit of Frank into the things he was saying. And, and I almost regretted that we couldn't hear him quite as clearly as we would have liked to because I felt that he was almost, he was willing us to egg him on and go down that route a bit more. And, and, and he was, he was really up for it. And yeah, as you say, that was, that was the example to me of how challenging everything was for him in his later years, but he didn't lose that spirit that made him Frank Williams. 
Yeah, he used to do that quite quite a lot in interviews. I can remember a lot of times he he'd ha- he'd say his thing, then he'd tag on his little joke, and then it would be, yeah, don't write that. <laughs> <laughs> See the other the other way of his interviews. I remember there was a period when Maurice Hamilton, Nigel Roebuck, Alan Henry, um, sometimes Ian Young and myself would go pre-season for sort of a coffee down to the factory. And there were a couple of times when you'd sort of sit there and you say, so what about the new car, Frank? And you would get this monosyllabic answer. And we'd all sort of be eyeing each other out of the corner of our eyes, thinking, well, it's your turn to try and get him fired up this time. And how it would drag on you, thinking this is like a heavy plane that is not going to clear that hedge that's already way beyond the runway. And then one of us would get him talking about the old days. And he'd start off, you know, he told a fantastic story about Piers Courage driving. He had a Ford Zodiac and he was towing his Formula 3 car around the continent. And he was in Austria and he was really tired. He'd been driving for a long time and it was dark. And he was getting more and more and more annoyed of this guy coming towards him on a long straight with only one headlight on that was on main beam and blinding him. And he's thinking, well, I'm not going to move. And then, like, right at the last minute, Pierce thought, oh, I better get out of the way. And pulled over, and this train or trams went wanging past him on rails. And he had all these kind of stories about Pierce sleeping sideways in the car with his feet dangling out the window. And once you got him onto those, he was absolutely brilliant. And invariably, we would laugh ourselves stupid and then leave after a couple of hours, and it had been a great morning. But it was... Just as if he didn't, sometimes he just didn't want to talk about the modern era. And yet for all that, the love of the modern team remained. He was still this totemic figure in within Williams F1, even when, you know, for, for the latter years in his life, he really wasn't a hands-on team principal. Claire Williams was a de facto team principal, yeah. uh, his daughter. and But Frank was still there, but he lived at the factory to all intents and purposes because he had his uh, little, little sort of home there, mm. uh, as it were. But he'd still... Um, Still, at times, he'd sort of make his way around the factory, speak to staff, even on occasions. Because as part of the the kind of medical care regime, he used to regularly have to be sort of, sort of, for want of a better word, sort of jack up his wheelchair. So he'd be sort of in a standing position. I'm sure people. Well, have seen he'd, he'd hang of that. on the frame, wouldn't he? Exactly, yeah. And he has to have that for a certain amount of times a day. And sometimes he'd he'd, he'd have, have that done in the security hut, kind of at the end of the day, just so he can see off some of the. Uh, some of the workers <laughs> just um so he he was very much if you speak to people he's been there in, in sort of recent times still still a presence obviously until the until the sale and I, I think even though those those later years the team was much diminished the fact that it survived and the fact also that it's now got quite a bright future is testament to what what Frank Williams mm. and the the wider Williams family achieved i was speaking to someone the other day who who was had good knowledge of what happened with the sale. And one of the things they said was that the Williams family, their their real focus in terms of the sale was finding the right custodian for the team, the right new owner, the right future. It wasn't about maximising personal gain. No, it no, was absolutely, absolutely about finding the right had owner. to be in the right hands, didn't it? Here's, here's a story about Frank. I think it's really, I love this story because it's the human side of it. In 1989, a friend of mine was paralysed in a car accident. And it happened the weekend of Spa, I think. And at Monza, I went to see Frank and I sat down and I said, look, this is the situation. 
I need to know what I should look out for. I, I want you to tell me how we all sort of help this guy and, you know, the things we should or shouldn't do and everything else. So he gave me like paralysis 101. And he was really good about it, you know, bang, bang, bang. And that's when he said that thing about he was glad it had, hadn't happened to Peter. And then my friend was in Stoke Mandeville. And I, I was up and down there loads of times. And I went in about three months later and he was really kind of up. And I, he was never one of those people that was down about it, this guy. But he was really buzzing. And I sort of laughed about that. And he said, guess who came to see me yesterday? I don't know, I come up with a few ideas. He goes, no, Frank Williams. I said, what? And he said, Frank just came in to see me. And they didn't know each other. And they did have the same consultant, Mr. Gardner. But I just thought that said so much about Frank because three months later, he'd remembered this story about this kid, checked out if he was still there and had taken the trouble to go. Now, you might say they're both in the same boat, so he's more likely to, but I didn't, I, I didn't see it like that. I just thought that was such a fantastic thing to do. And it raised this guy's spirit so much and helped him so much that this, this God had come to see him. And I thought that, you know, the, the story about Frank telling me off for being a naughty boy and all that sort of stuff, that's one side of him. This was another side of the, what I thought was, as being an intensely human side of Frank. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's an amazing story, and very, very much so. Didn't need to do that, which I think says <laughs> says, says a lot for him. We could probably talk for hours about about Frank Williams, and we've only really scratched the surface. But I think we should probably leave with a little bit of an idea of where he stands in the in the pantheon of the of the great team bosses. Glenn, I mean, I don't think anyone would dispute that he's one of the one of the all time great team bosses. But what, what do you think his legacy is in Formula One? Oh, I mean, it's it's great. Firstly, it's great that the team that bears his name is still here. It appears to have good owners now. That uh, they're not going to going to change the name. And actually, talking about the team ending up in the right hands, I think they were right not to sell. Just to go back a bit, I think they were right not to sell to BMW in the mid two thousands because with the problems Williams had on the car side at that time, BMW wouldn't have stuck around for long enough to fix those would have pulled out, I assume anyway, in 2009 because they still wouldn't have won a world championship. And at best, Williams would have then been left in the lurch as Peter Sauber was, trying to scramble to save the team again. And if it had kept going, it wouldn't have been really any better position. It might have slightly better facilities at the time. But that wasn't, it. as it turned out, we talk about the, these these true greats, these icons like Ron Dennis and Frank having to see into the future. If you looked into the future then, it maybe seemed like not a great move in the middle of the manufacturer era of F1, but actually with how that all played out, it would have been a terrible move for Williams. So the the legacy, it's obviously in a visual sense, it's the iconic cars, paint schemes, drivers, celebrations, victories. But for Frank, it is it's an incredible, an incredible life story alongside running an incredible team and it's great that the Williams team's history will be around forever what Frank did on it well what Frank did for that team on the track and did in his own life off the track will stick around forever it's 
it's forever going to be a part of, of F1 history. There, there, a name like Williams isn't far behind, and this is not an exaggeration and not just saying this because we're talking about Frank in these terms. A name like Williams really isn't far behind a name like Ferrari these days in in Formula One terms, just like McLaren isn't as well. And they're so important to so many people over so many generations as well. Looking at the outpouring that we've seen of people remembering and celebrating Frank uh, today, it's people who different generations of Williams appeal to different people. So there are people to whom the the, the 70s the and the early 80s, that era is what makes you feel warm and fuzzy thinking about Williams. Then there's there's the big the big nasty 1980s turbo cars. Then there's the elegant Adrian Newey cars. And for, for other fans, there'll be the, the BMW era, the Montoya era particularly, a, a driver who we've not really talked about, but absolutely epitomised in so many ways what Frank loved about a driver. And, and Frank was, just to very quickly touch him, he was obsessed with him when he was in America. They obviously had him under contract, but they were, they were so determined to get him back. So there's just there's so much of Williams' history is is colourful. I don't, I don't think of Williams as a clinical team. They were a colourful team that brought so much to to the sport. David's told some great stories about what it's like to work with Williams even during their peak, but what they meant to fans as well during that era. And I hope, I hope we see Williams rise again. Will there ever be a championship winning force? Who knows? That very much depends on the, the picture of, of F1 in the future. But it's great that Williams have survived. They've not, they've not done a Tyrrell quite. That um they appear to be here to stay now. And, and I just I really hope that we see some genuine moments of Williams' success again. So that a long time after Frank's gone, his team still stands for something special in Formula One. It's funny, David, isn't it, that Glenn mentioned Ferrari comparing them to Williams. In a way, Frank Williams was kind of the ultimate, what Enzo Ferrari would have called a garage Easter. He'd have meant it as a as a as a kind of criticism. But Frank would have loved that, wouldn't he? That was absolutely what Frank Williams was, wasn't it? Yeah, he was a maverick. And I think, yeah, I agree totally with everything Glenn said. Um I sort of think of courage, dignity, determination, that refusal to lose, that fire to win engineering excellence you know they were never afraid to to push forward with things they made active suspension work um all the sort of things that cvt transmissions that they looked at um i just think it is an iconic team and i'm so happy that it's still surviving under the, the williams name and personally I'm a big fan of Jos Capito, and I think they're in very good hands. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, it's going to cost me a lot of money because we'll go somewhere expensive. But when they next win a Grand Prix, I don't care where Jos wants to eat. That's where we're going. Because I think you know we might have to wait many years before that happens. But I think you're right about Frank wanting the team to go somewhere safe. This, and I don't think Doralton is one of these companies that's in it for a quick buck. They're, they're in it for the long haul. And I think they're beginning to get the right people in the right positions there. And I I think everyone genuinely would be at, absolutely delighted to see Williams getting back on podiums again. I mean, in 2014, when 
Felipe was driving for them. It was funny because I sat on a plane with him and his dad going from, I think we were in Miami, and we flew over to Texas. And he'd just signed his deal to go to Williams the following year. And he was absolutely stoked to be driving for Williams. Yeah, I thought that was lovely as well because it's, the Williams name still means a lot and it stands for a lot. And it would never have done that without Frank and Patrick and what they achieved together and Frank's ongoing sort of strength even when he was in the background because everyone drew a lot of inspiration from him even right until the very end. And I think his overall legacy will will look back and say Frank was one of the greatest team principals there's ever been and certainly the longest serving. No, absolutely. I'd agree with everything you said there. Profoundly successful, shaped modern Formula One. And like you say, I think there will be a point again in the future when a Williams wins a race again. And when that happens, it'll be testament to Frank Williams that it will be almost like he's still there because he, he's so so just woven into the spirit of that team and will be for, for yeah, decades to come. he'll forever be a part of the fabric of the sport, won't he? Well, it's funny, I had a catch-up with him at Spa. I had lunch with Jonathan at Spa in 2019. Unfortunately, when the Formula 2 race was on, in which Antoine Hubert was killed, and I remember Johnny had to go upstairs to grab some stuff, and I was sat with Frank, and I'd always been very conscious of not wanting to embarrass Frank at times if his memory wasn't so strong. And we had a really sweet conversation. You know, I realised he knew who I was and we talked about some old, you know, jokes and old races and stuff like that, but also about family and, you know, just the, the life things that you talk about. It was the last time I saw him and you could see a lot of the old Frank and it's just a really nice little memory to take away. That'll be one of my snapshots of Frank. But I'm sure, like everyone, we've got hundreds of them, haven't we? Yeah, I think both for those of us who are fortunate enough to to know him and the many millions of fans around the world who've watched his cars and got to know him from afar, he's he's got a very special place in in everyone's hearts. Well, thanks very much, David Tremaine and Glenn Freeman, for your for your insights. We will have to get you on another podcast in the future. I have to say, I feel it's a privilege to contribute to this one. So thanks for asking, and I'd be delighted to do some more. Oh, it's wonderful to have the chance to at least do Frank Williams' legacy, just uh, some small justice. It's uh, We could talk for hours and uh, and only touch on a fraction of it. It's been it's been fantastic. So yeah, thanks again and thanks to everyone for listening. Do head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen as there's plenty to read there, including some celebrations of, of Frank Williams. Check out our other podcasts, including Bring Back V10s, which Glenn Freeman hosts, and also check out our YouTube channel. In the meantime, here's to Frank Williams, and we'll be back soon with everything you need to know from the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix, which I'm sure will bring us the next chapter in a title fight that Frank Williams himself would have loved to watch.
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.